0: Hello, I'm Claire Sands and welcome to this week's My Why, the audio version of my weekly blog on thesilentwhy.com. Today I'm tackling just a tiny subject of God and suffering. No pressure there then. God. Heartless or heartbroken? Which side of the fence would you place him on? This week I'm touching on the small matter of if there's a God, how can there be so much suffering in the world? And as it's a big question, this is a slightly bigger episode. There's a reason I'm thinking down those lines today. It's Good Friday. And for those of us that don't really wrestle with the question of God and suffering so much, I think a lot of our answers are found in the Easter story, which is why I believe, as a weekend, it can offer a lot of comfort and healing for those of us that are grieving or in loss. So I want to explore this with you and my take on why I don't really struggle with the where is God in suffering question. Don't get me wrong, I've got my own questions that are similar but it's not this one specifically that keeps me up at night. And a lot of it has to do with the Saturday that falls in the Easter sandwich, because that's the day that I believe a lot of us that have been through grief and loss can connect with most. So Good Friday starts the Easter weekend off, and for us in the UK, we generally get the Friday and Monday off work, bonus. And on the whole, Easter is celebrated across the UK. When I say celebrated, I mean taking time off work to eat chocolate, visit a zoo with the kids. Very few people engage with the true meaning of the story, or indeed even know it, apparently. In 2014, according to research by YouGov for the Bible Society, one in three children had no idea why Christians mark Good Friday. One in four did not know why they celebrate Easter Sunday, and a quarter of children thought the hare and the tortoise were part of the original Easter story. I know some people will be thinking, why should they know it? And it's not so much that I'm saying everyone should know Christian stuff. But more that the Bible and its central story and message contains one of the greatest stories ever told. It's referred to everywhere. Comedy, film, history, geography, quiz shows. It's built cathedrals, churches, cities, relationships and nations. It doesn't matter what subject you dig into, you'll often find it there. It's impacted cultures, shaped policies, politics, laws and changed nations and hearts. So why on earth wouldn't you educate a child about that, especially when we spend so much time teaching them about things like sedimentary rock? Do you know how many copies of the Bible have been printed and sold? Take a guess. I'll give you some context. Don Quixote is pretty much one of the top-selling fiction books of all time, selling 500 million copies. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, written in 1859, has sold 200 million copies. The Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien, 150 million copies. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 120 million copies. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, 85 million copies. So what's your guess for the Bible? I'll tell you. It's 5 billion copies. Over 100 million Bibles are printed every year in the world today, and there are more than 80,000 different versions. The Bible has sold 10 times more copies than the best-selling book of all time. And weirdly, it's almost always omitted, from the top best-selling books of all time list. It's packed with stories of daring heroes, animals, courage, moral lessons. It's full of poetry, proverbs, romance, love, songs, redemption. So many books you read, so many films you watch, so many story plots are based around the story structure of what we celebrate at Easter. Light versus dark, hero versus enemy, good triumphs bad, sacrifice for love, redemption for wrongdoing, unconditional love, underdog saves the day truth in the face of injustice it's all there and any writer worth their salt knows it well marilyn robinson said in the new york times the bible is the model for and subject of more art and thought than those of us who live within its influence consciously or unconsciously will ever know as a literary heritage or memory it has strengthened the deepest impulse of our literature and our civilization emma Alton on her blog on bustle said Whatever you think regarding the actual truth of the Bible, you can't deny it's a pretty good story. It has love, murder, fire, battles, whales. It's bloodthirstier than Game of Thrones and more romantic than The Notebook. It's no wonder these stories have such a hold over us, whether or not we were raised with religion. After all, most of us have performed in an embarrassing nativity play at some point in our school life. So when it comes to writing a novel, is it any surprise that Bible stories find their way in? She went on to show how books like Harry Potter, The Stand, The Green Mile, Superman, The Golden Compass, A Wrinkle in Time, were all heavily copying or influenced by biblical storylines. Shakespeare, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Paradise Lost, Lord of the Flies, The Handmaid's Tale, they've all been discussed in this context. So after all that, now that we know so few people really know the true Easter story, despite its influence on everything we see, what is it? I'm going to give you my take on God, suffering, and Easter with a story. Not the full theological telling of the Bible, you can get that anywhere, and theologians, please forgive anything that I'm getting off base with. But I really think this Easter weekend has a lot to teach those of us going through loss and grief. And thrown into exploring that, hopefully, comes a bit of a basic explanation around, if there's a God, why do people suffer? So sit comfortably, focus on your driving, or carry on with the dishes. Either way, I want to take you back to before the existence of the earth. I want you to forget everything you think you know about religion, science, myth, God, and human life. Let's just pretend it's me and you, looking out into nothing, just observing the beginning of time. Nothing that we know exists yet. Just me and you, in the dark. But we're very aware of an eternal presence. Someone else nearby. And then God enters the scene. Picture him however you want to. I think you will get a kick out of whatever you decide to imagine. But maybe make him kind of friendly-looking for the purpose of this story. As we watch, God comes into his workroom, and today, he's decided he wants some company. So he starts to make the universe. And we feel utterly privileged to witness this moment. The Bible describes it like this. Everything he makes is sound inside and out. He loves it when everything fits. When his world is in plumb line true. Earth is drenched in God's affectionate satisfaction. The skies were made by God's command. He breathed the word and the stars popped out. He scooped sea into his jug and put ocean in his keg. When God makes a world, it is sound, inside and out. It's basically perfection. A perfect earth. No pollution, no plastic, no climate issues, no death, no disease. I want to say no giant spiders, but I'm learning to love all creatures, so I won't say that. And here me and you are just watching this with fascination. Then he goes a step further, and he creates these little people. They look tiny from where we're sat, and in comparison to God. A male and a female. And he gives them the earth as their home. And God is super happy to have these little guys around. You can see his pleasure, and he can't wait to have a relationship with them, as a friend, a father, a creator. He showers them with really cool stuff to enjoy. Animals, fish, sunsets, sunrises, the moon. All the things we love and gravitate to in the natural world when everything else is driving us crazy now. And of course, although they don't know it yet, they also have the almond, which eventually leads to the amazing ability to make marzipan. Humans have arrived and God is pleased with his creation. He intends for them to have a pure relationship with each other and with him. But because he wants them to love through choice, he also gives them free will. He doesn't want to force them or control them. He wants a real relationship. And it's perfect. It's the relationship everybody dreams of. Like having someone that's that perfect parent, spouse, lover, friend, sibling, all at the same time. You're known and loved and appreciated completely for exactly who you are. Nothing more, nothing less. Now I don't know about you, but if I was watching this, I'd be like, "Uh, God, I'm not sure that's the best idea. Because we humans, well, we're not great at the whole love thing. And you give us free will, we're for sure going to wreck this. Think Bruce Almighty in the film. When he has God's powers and he's trying to make grace, his wife love him. And Morgan Freeman, who plays God, is like, no, you can't do that. It's not what being God is about. Anyway, that's the relationship and the existence we were created for, by a God who is completely holy. And what that means is a whole other thing completely. But basically, don't boil him down to anything you can come up with. He is outside of your mind and thought in every possible way. He created your tiny little brain, but it was never designed to comprehend everything God. So we're watching God interact with these little people and we can see he knows and loves them completely. Every thought and desire and action, nothing is a surprise to him and he delights to be with them. Unconditional love. Just like the children we create now. They come with their own free will. You can't really do anything about that and you just hope they love you out of choice. So, God is happy, humans are happy. They live a life of total innocence, just how God intended. And they will live eternally in the garden with God creating more people to enjoy the perfect environment they've been gifted. Although like any good parent or relationship, there are rules or boundaries. Don't tell me that any child raised with no boundaries is better than the child that's raised with boundaries. We all know those kids, and it stands out a mile, and I hate to break it to you parents, but those kids are not fun to be around. So God gives the humans just one rule, one tiny way for them to show him some gratitude and obedience for all they have. And it's basically, don't touch that tree. There are loads of beautiful trees, all full of amazing food, but there's one particular tree that God tells them not to eat from. And if they eat from that tree, they will die. Seems like a fair deal to me. But then as we're watching them enjoy life and explore, I imagine the music changing, and suddenly we get that feeling like in films. There's a bad guy around. Yep, there's always a bad guy. And in this story, it's a cunning little snake. And he says to the humans were you told not to eat from that tree? You know why, right? If you do, you won't die. You'll be like God and know everything. So at this point, I know the goody two shoes that I am, I'm going to be like, uh, God, quick, you know, something's happening. Stuff is going down here. And this is the very moment where I feel like the question, where's God when things go wrong, coming in for the first time. God is all knowing. He knew this was happening, but he doesn't step in. Why? Well, If you've taught your kids not to steal, when you happen to be privy to a conversation where a friend is trying to convince them to do that, does a good parent march in, tell them not to be so silly and drag them home screaming? Or do they wait, and see if what they've taught their child has sunk in? See if the child is capable of making good decisions yet. Which way does the relationship and the person grow more? Or learn more? I think God's heart is in his mouth as he waits to see what the humans will do. After all he's done for them and given them, will they choose to disobey him and not trust him? Or will they be faithful? Sadly, we all know what happens next. They cock it up. They eat the damn fruit and break the universe. And from that moment, their innocence is gone. And our lives and relationship with God changed forever. As their innocence is shattered, sin enters the garden. Disobedience arrives and shame quickly follows. Exactly what God was trying to protect them from. Remember the time your mum told you not to climb on that wall? And you did, and you fell and you broke your leg? And then we've all heard those words. I asked you not to do one thing. I imagine this moment a bit like all the naked kids that run up and down the beach. No shame, not conscious of anything that could go wrong, complete innocence and trust. If you could click your fingers and impart all you know about nudity, beaches, identity, self-confidence, body confidence, predators, etc. Onto them, opening their eyes to everything you knew, That innocence would be shattered, and they would run and hide filled with shame. This is like what happened in the garden. So here we are. We're in a broken world as a consequence. They got kicked out of the garden. Now they will die one day. They will have to work for their food. Having children will be painful. Love will be painful. Life will involve tears, hard work, shame, anger, disappointment, and all the horrible emotions that we feel. We still get to enjoy the earth and everything God created for us, but it needs looking after. There are weeds, disease spreads through plants, animals, humans. We get to experience it all, the full range of existence, not just the good. The weight of looking after it all and keeping it good is now our responsibility too. And that's not what God intended for us. But as God is love, not that he loves us, he is love, he cannot not love us. So he's still there. Waiting. Wanting a relationship with anyone that chooses it. And for those that do this, it's open to anyone. He offers the gift of eternal life with him. And for those who don't want to, for those that want to be separated from him or choose to believe he doesn't exist, he gives them the free will to believe that. He grants their wish of eternal separation from him. And it breaks his heart. And so man continues to do his thing. And it gets worse and worse. Humans are killing each other, living in a way that's unhealthy for them. Lying, making idols, stealing, all the bad stuff. And there's this point in the Bible, such a sad verse, where it says, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. God was sorry that He had made the human race in the first place. It broke His heart. God said, I'll get rid of my ruined creation, make a clean sweep. People, animals, snakes, and bugs and birds, the works. I'm sorry I made them. God decided to start over again. But then it says, But Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. So instead of wiping everybody, God decides to save Noah and his family. And he tells Noah years ahead of time what he's going to do to make a big boat, and everyone and every animal that gets on that boat will be saved. And if you've seen Evan Almighty, you'll know what it's like trying to explain to people that this is what God wants you to do. I'm guessing the mocking and the trolling was harsh. So God starts again with a few faithful people and all the animals. And after the flood, he puts a rainbow in the sky as a promise to man that he will never do that again. Hence the reason the meaning of rainbows being so significant to Christians, which was especially special when they were adopted everywhere as a sign of hope during the pandemic. And over the years, God tries to help humans by giving them ways to make things right with him, sacrifices for their sins, ways to get back into relationship with him, and say sorry for the bad choices they've made and the way they hurt him. But every time, man cocks it up again. And it all reaches a where man is so separated from God that even when they cry out to him as individuals or as a nation, there's no easy way to make things right. God can't be around sin, that's part of his holy nature, so every time he made a way for us to come back into relationship with him and atone for our sins with sacrifices, we failed. God knows that when we do bad stuff it hurts us, there's a negative effect on our actions, whether we know it or not, and he wants to protect us from that. So at this point, back on the edge of the universe, me and you watching all this play out, We're thinking, this is broken, how on earth can this go on? And then God comes up with a new plan, a plan of salvation, to offer the humans a way out of the cycle of sin. The only way for this to be achieved is for there to be one ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And a lot of this is cultural, so I know some of this sacrifice stuff might not make a lot of sense, but you can Google that. Now you have to remember that God is three in one. So there's God the Father, the Creator, also God the Son, who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And that's where our small brains start to go, what? I heard it described once as like water, which can also be liquid, solid and gas, if that helps at all. They work together as one team, perfectly united, but yet distinct from one another. And the plan God comes up with is this. Out of love for the people he created, he's going to offer a sacrifice that will atone for all sins, whether committed already or in the future. And this will offer anyone that wants it a way to be redeemed and brought back into a perfect relationship with him. All they have to do is repent in their heart of their sins, believe in God, and ask for his forgiveness. But the only sacrifice that could pay such a price is God himself. So he chooses to sacrifice his only son, Jesus, for the cause. Now if me and you have been watching this in our prime seats in the universe, I know I'd be like, uh, you can't do that, God. That's too big. I'm not sure they deserve that level of sacrifice, and they definitely won't appreciate it. Do you really want to do that for them? Maybe you could just start again? But for whatever reason, God didn't listen to people like me. And because we need to be shown the way out of sin, God sends Jesus to earth to be born as a human, to experience the full human life. Born in a stable, through a socially questionable birth. Born in a town no one liked, a welcome party of criminals and foreigners. A refugee, rejected by his own people, lied about, spat on, no marriage, no children, arrested, beaten, let down by friends, despised and ultimately put to death by those he came to save. At the age of 33. I don't know if you've ever tried to help an animal that was in danger, but it was too wary for you to realise that you were trying to help it, so it wouldn't follow you. The only way to help it would actually be to become the same species and show it the way out. In a nutshell, that's what Jesus did for us. He became like us to show us the way out of the danger. But, and I can't leave this bit out, in the three years before he died, he went around telling as many people as possible about the love of God their creator and how they can live their life to the full, as we were intended to live in the first place. And that's where he made it into countless historic accounts, not just the Bible. And if you want to see more of that, I thoroughly recommend The Chosen, which has just streamed some episodes on YouTube, and you can watch it through their app. People in Israel actually find it fascinating that some of the Western cultures over here think Jesus was a myth of some kind. They have historic proof that he was here. What's open to debate is whether you think he was the son of God or not. C.S. Lewis, in his great no-nonsense way with words, put it this way in mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic, on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. And that brings us to today, Good Friday, where God offered up Jesus as a way to redeem the sin of the whole world. On that day, all the sin ever committed was put onto Jesus and he paid the price for us. Jesus paid for your sins, waved his contactless card at the cross, and those familiar beeps told you everything you've ever done wrong, everything you ever will do wrong, was paid for by him. And that offer is open to any and every human being, no matter how much your outstanding invoice was. And because God can't look on sin, in that moment, for the first time, Jesus was separated from his Father. So that's where God is when people are suffering. He's right there with them. As the saying goes, God doesn't pull us out of our suffering. He parachutes in next to us. I hear a lot of people saying in grief they want someone to just sit with them. Yet when it comes to God, they expect him to sort it all out and fix it. Take away their free will to choose and orchestrate things so they don't have to suffer. But is that what they really want? If God stopped you marrying the man of your dreams because he knew he would die later of cancer and cause you immeasurable pain, would you go along with that plan? If God prevented you having children because the child would die, would you be okay with that? You'd probably say, well, only if I had all the information. But how can that be possible? That would make you God. And that's ultimately what I hear people say when they question where he is. They want to do his job for him, because maybe they think for some reason it looks easy. Again, I refer you to the film Bruce Almighty. So much, but not all of course, of suffering is man-made. Like war, murder, heartbreak, climate change, the extinction crisis. Even 4 out of 10 cancers are apparently preventable. You can't tell me that if the richest countries and people all pulled together, we couldn't solve a lot of human suffering, hunger, drought, persecution and corruption across the world. But then I guess it's easier to complain about God not fixing it than for us to try. If God fixed all the suffering instantly for everybody, whether they deserved it or not, where do you draw that line? I mean, that for me is just a crazy argument. Why is there suffering? Because there are humans. Why is there a war in Ukraine? Because of a man. Because of one man, possibly, and the nasty precedents set by other men before him. Of course, there are situations where immense suffering occurs, and it's no one's fault. It's just part of living in a broken world. But rather than assume this breaks God's heart, people seem to assume he is heartless. Which I have to admit, breaks my heart. The one person saying to everybody, come to me, I want to help you, I want to give you comfort, I want to be there next to you while you go through it all, is the one person people choose to blame instead. Yes, at times, he does step in, he moves, he heals, he speaks, he comforts, and there are millions of testimonies from people that will say it was only through war, through pain, and through death, and through illness, that they knew God, experienced him, and found him. The church is thriving in countries where people are being killed just for being a Christian because they've experienced him through that pain. Did you know, according to the charity Open Doors, that in 2021 across the world, 16 Christians were killed every day just for choosing to follow Jesus? I don't see many people campaigning for their rights or that injustice over here. Fascinatingly, the element of suffering in life has drawn just as many people towards believing in God as it has pushed them away from him. So when Easter comes around, Good Friday is about the pain, the sacrifice, the tears. But Good Friday is only seen as good when you put it in the light of the whole story and what Jesus did for us. And the next bit, because Good Friday precedes Easter Sunday. The celebration, the resurrection of Jesus. Because God couldn't let death and sin win the battle. There's a bad guy in this story, don't forget. And Satan, the fallen angel, a whole other story, is keen for people to ignore everything Jesus did. He wants people on his side too. He wants people separated from God. He wants war, division, hate, disease. He thrives off it. And when Jesus died, there was a moment of it looking like he'd won. But the grave doesn't get to hold Jesus for long because three days later, Jesus rises again. He leaves the tomb and around 500 people saw him before he ascended back into heaven to show us again that we celebrate a God that is alive, not a dead saint, a living God that wants a living relationship with us. Catherine Pulsifer said, The resurrection of Jesus is the most amazing miracle of all time. It is well documented that not only one person saw him, but hundreds. And, side note, when he went back to heaven, the Holy Spirit came to earth and he can actually live through us to help us experience all Jesus spoke about and work through us to help others and pray for them, etc. Anyway, getting off track, but it's just an area that seems so misunderstood at times I just can't help but share as much as I can about it. But the main reason I'm doing all this, and you can come back from your position of being sat in the sky with me, put yourself back in your own human shoes now. It's because of Saturday. If Good Friday represents the pain of your loss, the grief, the gut-wrenchingly difficult moments, and Easter Sunday represents the joy we can find through loss, the hope and appreciation of a life lived, and all the good things, What about the Saturday in between? Well, I think this is the day we identify most with in the story. It was the day where all the disciples, Jesus' mother and the people were left alone. Jesus, their Messiah, that they'd waited 400 years for, by the way, had died, gone. Their mourning, sorrowful, full of questions and I don't knows, traumatised. Something they'd devoted their life to had been brutally taken away. They would have been confused, frustrated, lost, not able yet to see the resurrection and the good that would come through the bad. And they don't fully understand what's going on. I love this day, because it's so human. It wasn't just like Jesus died and then 20 minutes later he's like, Ta-da! I'm back! There's that time of questioning, space for the stages of grief to move. We all know this feeling in this time. For some losses, we're in this Saturday for years, decades. For some, it's minutes. Sometimes we rush through it and find a way to celebrate life on the other side. Sometimes we begrudgingly drag our feet through it, kicking and screaming. Sometimes we sit in it and process before we move on. Sometimes we hate every second of it. Sometimes we use it for good, other times we resent it forever. Some people never make it out, some people don't want to. But what I really hope the Silent My podcast shows is that there's an option of another day beyond the Saturday. There is a way to find hope, to find life again, to find joy. And by talking to people who have reached their Easter Sunday, we are able to help others by guiding them towards it when they're ready. I'm not going to tell you it's all hedgehogs and marzipan on the other side, I'm not sure with childlessness I'll ever make it fully to Easter Sunday, because every time I think I'm there, something else seems to take me back into Saturday to process something different. But I'm always aiming for it, and I know it's there, and I'll return to it again, because it's wonderful, and that's a comfort to me. I'll finish with these words from a few famous names you might know. Martin Luther said, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. Billy Graham said, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. Clarence W. Hall says, Easter says you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. And Rick Warren said, 2000 years ago, in the Middle East, an event occurred that permanently changed the world. Because of that event, history was split. Every time you write a date, you're using the resurrection of Jesus as the focal point. And that's why Easter holds special meaning, not just to Christians who are celebrating the true story, but also to those who mourn, because it maps out grief through one of the greatest love stories ever written. And where there is love, there is always loss.